great to be with you all this morning. Had a great time with the parish council last night visiting. That is those who didn't go to the sinful bluegrass festival. Wish I was there. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun. Um, I'm traveling solo right now, but my my wife sends her greetings. Elise, she would have loved to have been here. She's in Mississippi at a ballet camp with one of our daughters, and uh, we've just returned from the Holy Land where we lead groups every couple of years. Uh, so some people from Incarnation went with us this time. We had a really good time with them, the kids, and uh, Zelda Blackwell and her son, and um, Brian Scholl, and Aubrey and Janelle were along with us on the trip. We had a wonderful, wonderful time in the Holy but um, I've been very much looking forward to being with you all. Uh, I can't believe it's you've been in for several years, and I haven't been here on a Sunday morning. It's a great joy to be with you. So thank you for your warm hospitality, especially Kevin has, has uh, become a really good friend in the diocese, and uh, you're very blessed to have him as a pastor. I'm sure you know. We're going to be looking at this passage together from Matthew 16. Before we do so, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for the way you speak. You will pour out your whole on us this morning that we would hear from you through this passage, that our hearts would be changed, our minds would, would be renewed, and we would be transformed by through your holy word, that you're here unchanged, um, but we would we would know you more, and our full allegiance even more, as we leave this place. So please bless this time together, Lord, we pray in Christ's name, amen. It's been almost two years since, um, white, or one year since the white nationalist rally in Charlottesville um, clashed with counter-protesters, and a number of people were injured, and uh, a 32-year-old woman died. Um, I can remember we were on vacation in North Carolina at the time, but we were so shocked by what happened. Um, how, how could this have happened in sleepy Charlottesville. I mean, Charlottesville is where people move to get away from this kind of thing. There. And pray, my wife, you all, and for Incarnation and for the plant in Crozet, uh, just thinking about what kind of, of unrest is spilling out across our country. Um, now they, they wanted to have a gathering in Charlottesville, Charlottesville, so uh, where um, but who, who would have imagined that something like this would happen out here? It's, it's shocking. But the sad truth is that kind of thing could happen anywhere in our country, you know? Um, the that you hold us together have all but disappeared. The glue that sticks Communities like Charlottesville together or Elkton together, it's gone or it doesn't stick anymore. Um, so our grievances against one another fester like never before. And we've come to see ourselves 
to understand ourselves increasingly by our political identities. That's sort of the team identity that we go to first, more and more, our political identities. Now, coming from Capitol Hill, I just don't understand this. I, I think, you know, we're known for our deep camaraderie and brotherly love. I'm like, what's wrong with Washington is by no means solely to blame for all the time. You might say that Washington is ground zero for American political dysfunction and its repercussions. The nation and really the world look to our city for leadership. And sadly, what we export oftentimes, very few positive examples, oftentimes negative ones. Elise and I moved to Washington in 1999 from Florida, and uh, there's a lot to love about living in Washington. We live inside the city. There's a lot to love about it. It's, it's a great place, actually, to raise kids. Uh, it's, there's so much to do. We love the, the nationals, and we love the, uh, the museums, and um, it's, it's fun. But it can be a really hard place to make friends. It can be really difficult. When we first moved to Washington... A long-time Washingtonian took me aside and said, the difference between New York City and Washington is this. In New York, people work really hard in order to make money to have fun. They work long hours from Monday to Friday so that they can hit the road Friday afternoon, get out to Long Island or wherever they're going, and they can again. They want to live it up. They want to live it up with their friends. Um, Washingtonians are there in order not to have the good life, but to change the world. And long after New Yorkers have packed and gone away for the Washingtonians are still working late into the night on Friday and all day Saturday. And thank goodness our church started as a Sunday evening congregation because we might not have gotten anybody Sunday morning. They're willing to work long hours packed into these um, for very little pay for some important cause, and they never slow down. That's what my friend told me. And it's really true. You know, Washington has the highest uh, per, per capita of 25- to 34-year-olds of any metropolitan area in the country. Uh, it is where young people flock to in order to change the world. And the economy of our capital demands these, the, this uh, steady supply of hard idealists to come where our church is. And they come from everywhere, and they believe deep in their hearts that they are coming for a particular cause. And when their cause finally succeeds, that the world will be forever changed. That good will triumph over evil, and civilization will be saved by working on whatever, whatever it is they're working on. The high hopes of redemption, though, have become an impossible burden for our American political system. God has blessed us with a great system, I believe. We ought to be engaged in it. We really should. But even if government were working flawlessly... It couldn't deliver on all the hopes that we have for the repair of everything that's broken 
All the dreams that Americans have placed on our government come to expect of it. It couldn't deliver on all those things, could it? And of course, we live in a time when our government is especially dysfunctional, right? You see, I have uh, never seen people quite so discouraged and unhappy. Young political idealists speed into town. They spend a few years stuck in political gridlock. And instead of transforming the world, they themselves are transformed, and they're transformed into bitter cynics. They're so discouraged. They leave the city uh, discouraged and, and disenfranchised. So yes, the shocking polarization that we saw in Charlottesville last summer is also happening in Washington. It's, it's been happening there for a long time. And it's really happening everywhere in the country. And there, there are a host of reasons for this dysfunction. Uh, we could spend a long time talking about all the, the root causes. But what I want to highlight for you this morning is just one feeling that seems to be held across the board with most everybody that I talk to, regardless of where they're from or what political party they're associated with. One feeling, and it's a sense of deep disappointment. It's a sense of unmet expectations that uh, things be a different way, and they aren't. And it's, it's a sadness, a grieving because of the way they are. And my contention is that the unrealistic expectations that we place on our government are a primary for the unrest right now. The unrealistic expectations are a primary cause for that. We see injustice and brokenness everywhere. And in many cases, the problems are enormously complicated, too complicated for individual citizens like, like you and me to solve on our own. And so what wrong? Well, the government ought to be able to fix it. Whatever it is that's wrong, the government ought to be able to fix it because that's its job, right? And unlike individuals individual citizens like us, the government has the resources and power to make things happen. The problem is that our government rarely comes through on these expectations. Once in a while it does, <laughs> but most of the time it doesn't. And so, more often than not, the institution of government is unable to affect the kind of changes that we hope for, that we truly need. There is an institution that does have the potential to renew and transform our society. In fact, this institution is uniquely designed to address the areas of brokenness at both the micro level and the macro level, those areas of brokenness that are on our minds and hearts all the time, those places where we feel it so deeply. This is an institution that has a fabulous distribution network. And it is well-resourced to be able to work in every place. It's, it has the capacity to make real and permanent change anywhere and everywhere. It exists in Washington, and it also exists right here. I'm not talking... I know that's what you thought. I'm talking about the church. Believe it or not, I'm talking about the church. Jesus talked about the church all the time. Jesus was always talking about the church. He's probably talking about the church more than anything else. But he rarely used the word church. The first time 
in our Bibles that Jesus used the word church is in the passage that we just had read to us from Matthew chapter 16. And in, in that passage, he was talking about church in the context of a very political conversation. Um, the disciples had gotten away from the capital city. They had left Jerusalem. They had gone north, past the Sea of Galilee, uh, all the way up to what is the modern-day border with Lebanon and Syria, um, way, way up near Mount Hermon. And um, they were in a predominantly Gentile and Roman area at this point. So they had the freedom there to talk about things away from the capital city. And it's here that Jesus asked them this, I think, very political question in Matthew 16, verse 13. If you want to turn to your Bibles, we can follow along in this passage together. Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? The disciples responded in verse 14 with a variety of possibilities, all under a broad umbrella of the idea of prophet. Modern People oftentimes think of prophets as these kind of wild-eyed characters, um, cartoonish character, doomsday figures, antisocial. Um, but they were, in fact, a lot more put together than we usually think. They were a lot like modern secretaries. Uh, prophets were spokesmen for the deity that they represented. And the biblical prophets were spokesmen for for God, representing God to heads of state. Usually they would go and represent God's position, God's interest, as, as they would engage either the ruler of, of uh, Judea or Israel or uh, the surrounding nations. Jesus certainly had a prophetic side to his ministry, certainly a prophetic presence, because uh, he was oftentimes speaking truth to power. But to regard Jesus simply as a prophet was wholly inadequate for who he was and what he was doing. And he, he hoped that his understood this. So Jesus pressed them. You know, everybody else is saying, now I'm a prophet. What do you think? Is that what you think? Do you think I'm merely a press secretary? What do you think? Verse 15. How, what about you? Here's where Peter responds with this very famous line in verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of God of the living God. Do our ears, Christ and Son of God, sound like very religious responses, don't they? But in fact, these titles constitute a political answer. Let's think about each one of them for a minute. Christ in Greek, or Messiah in Hebrew, means the anointed one. It was a title used to describe someone who had been anointed to rule, someone who had been anointed to be the king. It's not, uh, in this case, anointed to die, though Jesus would die also, but he had been anointed for ruling, just like former kings of Israel and Judea had been anointed uh, to rule. The Christ, or the Messiah, was a name used to identify the king. Peter said, you're the Christ, the King. He also said, you're the Son of the living God. What did he mean by that? In every Middle Eastern country in those days, the King was understood to be the adopted Son of the nation's God. 
After all, how could that man become king if he didn't get adopted by the nation's God, only by the permission and, in fact, the inclusion of that God, of that man into his family, would becoming king. This is the way it always worked. So uh, Pharaoh became the king of Egypt because Ra, the sun god, adopted And the king of Gaza in the Philistine country became the king because Dagon, the fish god, adopted him. Right? Uh, the king in Moab became the king of Moab because Chemosh, the god of Moab, adopted And likewise, in Israel, it was exactly the same way. When David became king of Israel, Psalm 2 says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. This day I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for, my inherit- for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. David was the son of God. That's just the way that the Israelites would understand it. So when Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ and the Son of the living God, Peter was making a political statement saying, you are the king. And that's when, in response, Jesus explicitly spoke of the church for the very first time in the context of talking about politics. Blessed are you, verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus' words here are foundational for the church. Simon, the as his true king. And as a result, the Lord gave him a name. Just as the Lord had given Abram a new name, entered into covenant with God, he became Abraham. Just as the Lord gives a new name to Jacob, he becomes Israel at that critical moment in the, in the life of Jacob. So also here, uh, Simon Bar-Jonah confesses as king. He swears his allegiance to Jesus as king. And Jesus changes his name to Cephas, or to Peter, which means bedrock, a solid stone foundation. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, do you remember when Jesus preached a long sermon and he talked about the rock? Do you remember what he said about the wise man who built his house on the rock? Over and against the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now Jesus says that he is building his church, God's house, on the rock. And what rock is that? It's the confession of Jesus as king. Foundation. That is the solid foundation for the church of the living God. The confession, the swearing of allegiance to Jesus as king. What makes this particular confession such a solid foundation? Jesus does. It's not our, it's not our swearing, but it's him. Uh, there's no one like Jesus. He is the only politician who always comes through. The only politician who never lets us down. He always keeps his promises. No leader has ever represented his people more sacrificially than Jesus. Jesus literally gave his life to save his constituency. 
He is therefore rightfully called the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, and the King of Kings. He is making all things new. And one more thing, he doesn't tweet. To become a Christian, then, is a highly political act. It is a move to leave behind your house on the sand, including, perhaps, the very unstable and shifting sands of American politics. And it is to make this same solid rock confession of Jesus as King. Swearing your allegiance to Him. It's not so much about accepting Jesus into your heart as it is making Him King over your entire life. He demands our full allegiance. We must confess Him as King, thereby our hopes, our enormous expectations for all the ways that the government might make everything well. Shifting our expectations primarily to Jesus as the one who makes all things new. Our hopes for education, our hopes for racial justice, our hopes for health care, all the things that are broken in our society, shifting our hopes to the king. Only in him. Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you sworn an oath of loyalty to King Jesus? I'm willing to wager that everyone in Elkton is still sort of Christian. Sort of. But is Jesus truly the king of Elkton? Is Jesus truly the king of your life? Does he have your full allegiance? Imagine what would happen here in this town if every sort of Christian gave their full allegiance to King Jesus. Imagine what would happen if we gave him our full allegiance. One of the most important things that happens when we give our allegiance to Jesus is that he gives us political appointments. Yes, to the victor belongs the spoils, and King Jesus gives his jobs in his administration. As followers of Jesus, we're called to be ambassadors. I mentioned my contention that most Americans have expectations on our government. King Jesus, on the other hand, has enormous expectations for his church. And his expectations are realistic. Now, this is what we discover in the rest of the New Testament, by the way. The church represents the single greatest innovation in human history because it replaces the old temple. The old temple was stuck in one place, and even in that one place, it wasn't working. Jesus goes in and cleans house. He says, this thing is in place where God and humanity are meeting. It's not happening here. In fact, it's become a den of robbers. Closed. Jesus dies. He rises from the dead. And he establishes his church now as a portable temple that goes wherever we go. We are this thin place. Wherever we go, wherever two or three are gathered, people can come to meet the Lord. Why? Because we're ambassadors of the king. That's our political appointment. That's what happens when we confess, as Simon Peter did. 
Jesus as King. We become living stones in this portable temple. From now on, we become that thin place wherever we go. So the local church, and by that I mean an individual congregation like the Church of the Lamb, serves as an embassy of a different kingdom. The kingdom of God. The kingdom that's ruled by King Jesus. And it's important to understand that the local church isn't or non-political. It's very much a political community whose task is to represent King Jesus in the world. The local church is supposed to show off King Jesus' love, to show off His grace and mercy. If you were to go to Washington, D.C., and you were to visit the embassy of Uruguay or Rwanda or, or... you would be shown a kind of hospitality, the best hospitality. You go into the embassy of Jordan and they give you free dates. You go into the church, you should get love and grace and mercy direct from King Jesus. He wants you to have this. The church is supposed to show off also the wisdom of the Lord and the justice of the Lord. The local church is supposed to be the place, that go-to place when Things are broken, and you need them fixed. The church is supposed also to go out and lay claim to all that rightly belongs to King Jesus, namely everything. Therefore, all of us who are which is to say, all of us who make the same solid rock confession as Peter, Jobs and his administration, King Jesus' administration, and that includes the responsibility for binding and loosing, as Jesus says. We're to speak and act as government, government agents of King Jesus. We are to take his word with us wherever we go, and we are to forgive and pardon in his name. We are to extend the good news of the cross the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God. All of these gifts, we take them with us as government agents serving King Jesus and His administration. Isn't that great? We can baptize. We can bless and curse and heal and release and warn. All very much political actions in the service of our crucified and risen King. I don't know about you, but I think that this is the very best news in these days of polarization and despair. I can't think of anything better to respond to what happened in Charlottesville than this kind of news. We have a very different way to deal with the political unrest of our culture. King Jesus and his unfolding kingdom is good news for really everybody on all sides, whether those who gathered to you who stood to oppose them, uh, wh- whether those who are undocumented, those who are citizens, whether those whose ancestors were slaves or those whose ancestors owned slaves, whether those who come to Capitol Hill hoping to change the world as libertarians or Democrats, Republicans, we are surrounded by people who now define themselves by their political. No hope apart from seeing their tribe win. If they're not already frustrated and disappointed, they will be. They live in houses built on sand. The storms are coming. And they will not survive. And let's be honest, there are a great many Christians 
who identify themselves primarily by their political identities rather than by their in Jesus. Their political identities have overtaken their to the Lord. They may say that their hope is in the Lord, but they live as if their hope is in the political solution that they've made their team. And that's why not infrequently, politicized Christians are among the angriest and most unhappy people that we meet. But into this unhappy and unstable world, Jesus sends his church. He's neither surprised nor the least bit worried about the current political climate, it turns out. In fact, he's known all along that it would be this way. So he rescues us from death. He forms us together into loving communities just like this one so that he might have an embassy of his kingdom here in this highly context. My wife and I watched some of the Ken Burns documentary on the Vietnam War uh, a while back. And seeing the last moments of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon before it fell to the North Vietnamese um, was just incredibly sad, heartbreaking. After all of those years of investment, all the years of conflict, the millions who had died and the many Americans who had lost their faith in the government, communism prevailed, right? That's not going to be the end of the story for the church. The embassy of King Jesus solid rock. Jesus said, verse 18, the gates of hell fail against it. It will survive and it will succeed. So Jesus' church is the institution worth investing in. It's, it's the one thing worth hoping in. When all else fails, Jesus' church will prevail. There's a popular myth today that the church is bad. That the church is bad for individuals and especially bad for society as a whole. And this mythology has become so widespread that Christians oftentimes feel apologetic about being a part of the church. But if we were to gather up all the crusades, all the papal indulgences, all the goofy characters like Jim and Tammy Faye, we gather all of that junk, the hucksters' mistakes, and consider them in light of the overall impact of the church in the world, we would still find there's our small, minor note in history. And that the impact of the church has wrought so much good in the world. Overall, many of the sad things that have come untrue in our world wouldn't have happened without the church. For example, hospitals and schools. Things like prison reform, the abolition of slavery, and other efforts to promote human dignity. Curbs on infanticide and abortion incest, and so many other evils. Imagine what our nation's capital would be like if there were no churches there. Imagine what Elkton would be like if there had been no churches here. I can say without a doubt that no other experience or institution has had a greater impact on my life than the church. Any success or achievement in my life stems from the matrix of love and support and encouragement that I've received as a, as a member of the church. And it comes from not just knowing Jesus, but being affirmed by his people and having a spot in his administration. I want the world to know that my life has been changed for good by Jesus through his church. 
And I would love for everyone in our world to have the same experience. To say, I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready because God has called you to an embassy here in Elkton. That's your mission here. That's what you're supposed to be and do. This city needs you to do that. You must know one another deeply. You must love and be loved like never before. You have to invest your time and resources like never before. The kingdom of God comes more fully here. And this place, it's beautiful at night. That sign is lovely. This place needs to become that kind of bright, shining light on a hill for the sake of Elkton. You have to love your neighbors, by the way, regardless of their political identities. And I know it's hard because you may disagree with them quite a bit. But that's so petty. Allegiance to King Jesus to love people regardless of who they voted for. Regardless of where they stand on one issue or another. To whom much is given, much is expected. But have no fear, little flock. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. So he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's making all things new. Can I pray? We worship you as our King, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this high calling to be a part of your kingdom, to have a place in it and work to do. What a blessing it is to be together, to be a part of this mission. Will you pour out your spirit upon this church that the love and grace and mercy that we see in you might be found here among the people for the sake of this community and for the world. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.